It seems that most of the qualities of heart and mind that we treasure and long for and aspire to rest upon our capacity to let go, to release our hearts and minds from the painfulness of holding and grasping. It's probably evident to most of us that the places where we hold and cling most tightly in our life are also the places where we suffer most deeply. Whether that holding and clinging is to the pleasant or the unpleasant, whether it's external or internal, the result and the impact of clinging is pretty much always the same the sense of being governed by, imprisoned by, whatever it is that we cling to. The qualities of simplicity, of generosity, of loving kindness, of compassion, they all rest upon our willingness to let go. A heart without boundaries, a mind of calmness, and a life of freedom really rests upon renunciation. Now most of us long for those qualities, but strangely, or maybe not so strangely, we don't equally long for renunciation. And this is our dilemma, the paradox, the question we're asked to explore, because we are mostly happy to let go of suffering, but sometimes we're ambivalent about letting go of the causes of suffering and ambivalent about letting go of holding. Sometimes it feels very hard for us to be able to let go of things. What we don't always see is that there's much more hardship and pain in not letting go. No one, I think, has yet discovered how to grasp and cling to things tenaciously and have that grasping and clinging be a pain-free experience. So of course we're happy to let go of struggle and suffering, of pain and contractedness, but we're not always eager to let go of its causes or sometimes it just feels to be something of a mystery to us. We don't know how. Some people tell me when they hear the word renunciation that it sends something of a shiver up their spines. That it's the hardest word for them to hear. On one level, clearly, renunciation is countercultural. But I think on deeper level, it it's a word that can trigger waves of anxiety because I think in our minds or somewhere in our minds we carry the association that renunciation means somehow being deprived or disconnected or bereft or lonely and I think renunciation on unconscious level can carry these associations or images of being somehow lacking in heart or warmth or love or care. 
Mostly when we think about it, renunciate, probably the closest symbol that comes into our minds is a symbol of a monk or a nun who lives a monastery, a cloister. Perhaps we think of someone who's chosen not to cultivate a life of intimacy or connectedness or engagement with the world. And strangely, or maybe not so strangely, we often admire those people as models in the choices they've made. None of us imagine it's an easy life to be a monk or a nun. Yet, our admiration can coexist with a sense of doubt. We can't imagine ourselves maybe choosing that path. And from the outside, and I stress only from the outside, it can look to be a very austere and disconnected existence. And actually, you know, I, I know that in some of my time in practicing in monasteries in my more idle moments, sometimes when I was listening to the very lengthy Thai Dharmatak, and I would find myself speculating whether these folks even ever had any fun. I think these historical images do make quite a powerful impact upon us, you know, when we look at I mean, like a Buddhist pastor or a monk or a nun, we don't always see our own life and our own being reflected. And so then we can believe, perhaps, that renunciation really doesn't have very much to do with us. And yet, my sense is that certainly as the Dharma, as the teaching has moved in our culture very much beyond the walls of the monastery. Part of our challenge as lay people is who live daily lives that are often complex, where there's intimacy, relationships, engagement. Part of our challenge is to discover what renunciation means in the midst of, you know, this life and this body and this mind and this heart, because certainly we can't get away from the reality that renunciation is life at the very core of this teaching and path. Now, certainly we can be assured that the monks and nuns in the monastery face on a daily basis many of the same challenges and invitations that we face. They face the same challenge and invitation as us of how to find the heart's relief, how to find the freedom and the joy of non-holding. Those in the monasteries face the same longings and the same yearnings as we face for peace and for freedom and for openness. Now maybe it's clear that renunciation is primarily an inner journey. No matter the kind of nature of our life, whether it is complex or simple, and all of us, if we really treasure peace and treasure freedom, are asked to explore what renunciation really means in this life. And sometimes we need to reframe the question or reframe the journey. 
I see that delusion leads us to think that renunciation is not the end of suffering, but the cause of suffering. You know, because when we're deluded and we think about renunciation, basically we think about all these things we're going to lose. You know, we're going to lose this next fantasy, we're going to lose this identity, we're going to lose this experience. We think of all these things we have to do without, the second plate of food and, you know, our grand ambition and our favorite daydream. And we think, oh gosh, that means I'm going to suffer because I lose all of those things. And you know, that, that's delusion. That is delusion. And I think our tendency is at least to see the short-term, short-term positive outcome of craving and clinging. Because sometimes craving does seem to get us what we want. You know, if we're kind of upset or annoyed and we don't like it and we want to get rid of it, well, we can just turn on the TV, you know, or open the fridge, you know have a juicy fantasy if we're on retreat. You know, so sometimes craving seems to work temporarily. And we keep bouncing back in these same places. I personally sometimes think if we can reframe the question by thinking of the word renunciation and release interchangeably. That renunciation doesn't bring suffering, that renunciation releases into being peace and joy and compassion. When you think about the word bhavana, meditation, the word in Pali meditation is bhavana, and bhavana translates as bringing into being, bringing into being. And renunciation brings into being peace and joy and compassion. Letting go brings into being or releases our capacity for calmness and intimacy and connection. In this tradition, renunciation is presented not only as being a direct path to joy and happiness and freedom, it is presented as being in itself joy and happiness and freedom. The Buddha put it that the very natural state of our mind and heart is luminous and bright and radiant. That the natural state of our mind and heart is without boundaries. And that natural state is only colored by the holding and clinging, the visitors. So what we are doing in learning the art of letting go is learning to open into a very natural happiness and joy and ease. It seems to me that with beneath and perhaps within, every moment of letting go there is a quality of faith that is fulfilled. Because what are we really fulfilling in letting go? Is the faith that the source of true joy and true happiness 
lies in our own hearts and minds and not in all that we can cling to. Within letting go, we are really embodying the faith in our own capacity to rest in freedom. My sense also that behind and within every moment of clinging and holding, there is a quality of faith that is shaken and sometimes even betrayed as we lose that inner connectedness, that, uh, that con- confidence in our and trust in our own freedom. Now, holding and clinging, I think, can sometimes seem very theoretical. If you want to have an experience of what clinging is like, you could go outside and pick up a thorn or a sharp pebble and put it in your shoe, walk around on it for a few hours or for a day or a few days. And you would pretty quickly come to see the way in which that thorn or that pebble became your world. How you would close down around it. How you would surrender space. How in a way you would become the thorn or the pebble. We would also perhaps sense that that pain and that sense of closing down is optional. That to bring it to an end, all you would need to do is to take off your shoe and shake out the pebble, shake out the thorn, and the pain would end. In a very similar way in our life, there is so much pain and so much struggle that ends as we learn to open our hearts and to release holding. Ajahn Chah, one of the great fourth masters, once said that if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Learning to open our hearts, releasing the holding, is really a gesture of compassion and loving kindness and wisdom for ourselves and in truth for all beings. The Buddha, like all great mystics, very much placed renunciation and letting go at the heart of a path of freedom. Nisargadatta, a wonderful Indian teacher, once said that spiritual maturity lies in our readiness to let go of everything. The giving up is the first step, but the real giving up is realizing that there is nothing truly to give up, because there is nothing that you can truly claim as your own. 
Now, in letting go, it is not the world we are giving up. It's not all the things we treasure and value and love that we are letting go of. What we are truly giving up is wrong view. What we are truly letting go of is the mistaken notion, for example, that we really can control anything at all. We're giving up the mistaken notion that all the planning in the world can guarantee a future we desire. We are giving up fear, the fear and anxiety that lies at the heart of struggle and suffering. We're giving up, actually, the notions of self and I and all of the mythology that surrounds those notions. Now, as human beings, probably, we would like it if someone could give us a guidebook to letting go, an instruction book, or a map, a formula, an instruction book for renunciation. I think there isn't such a thing, of course. In truth, letting go is mostly born of love. Letting go is mostly born of a love, a freedom, and a deep understanding of what is not free and what is the nature of suffering. You know, curiously, in this tradition, the Buddha puts sorrow as the condition for the arising of faith. That if we don't truly, deeply feel sorrow and have the willingness to turn towards it, to be intimate with it, and to question it, that without that we would have no ground for a sense of possibility of it ending, nor would we have the willingness to really walk the path to the end of suffering unless we truly realize what suffering is. And that might sound really obvious and apparent, but it is very easy, actually, to not see suffering as suffering. It's very easy to see, for example, suffering as something wrong. You know, I had a very kind of classic example. Well, we all have classic examples of this, but one of the classic examples of this I kind of saw over and over again Last year, when I, I um, my um, parents unexpectedly moved in with me for five months, <laughs> I invited them for my daughter's graduation. <laughs> and when I asked how long they were coming, I thought it was a week or two. They said, "It's about five months." Great. Anyway, so they had a few ups and downs during this time, but. One of the difficulties of the course is um, my father is a very impatient man. His man is very angry with the world and lives in almost a perpetual state of rage. But one day in the supermarket car park, after I'd parked my car and he'd gone behind the car to measure whether I was equally distant in between the lines, and then he we got out of the car and he began to shout and I really couldn't imagine quite where it had gone wrong this time. <laughs> there was the customer who had left a shopping trolley in the car parking space beside my car 
And it was pretty kind of shouting at the world. There was nobody there to shout at. It was just trolley. We really didn't mind if it got shouted at or not. And anyway, after a few minutes of this shouting, I, I suddenly, I turned to him and I said, you know, Dad, I think there might be another way of doing this. And he said, what do you mean another way of doing this? You know, this is the way I've always done it. You know, this is the way you should do it. You know, because if you did this, people wouldn't leave the trolleys in the car. I said, Dad, I think there might be another way of doing this. But to me, it was such a, it was kind of like such a sorrowful moment. Because see, that, like if you don't see that as suffering, why would you want to be free of it? You think, well, you know, why not spend my whole life trying to fix the world? Because that's what's wrong, as if there's nothing amiss within my own heart. Now, although there's no formula for bringing about the end of suffering, one of the great things I've always appreciated about the teaching of the Buddha is he very rarely leaves you dangling. You know, he doesn't just say, let go, and then say, you know, and then be quiet. In fact, the Buddha talks a great deal about the many, many different ways that we cultivate a spirit of freedom and a spirit of renunciation and pathways of letting go in this life. Now, one of the ways that the Buddha talked about as being a direct path of renunciation and letting go was actually the pathway of integrity. In this tradition, tremendous emphasis is given to a life of ethics and integrity. Because it's a very direct way of turning our hearts and minds away from greed and anger and fear and doubt. And in doing that, it's integrity, the cultivation of integrity. It's a very direct way of turning our hearts and lives away from suffering. Certainly we see that at the heart of any thought or word or act that causes harm to ourselves or to another, there is holding. Holding on to a sense of what I need, what I want, what I must have, what I must get rid of. And I think most of us see that it's not easy to live a life of integrity. That the price of genuine goodness of heart for most of us, is the willingness to let go. The willingness to let go of greed, the willingness to let go of anger. And yet, suffering, its presence and its absence, must be what inspires integrity. I think we don't cultivate integrity because we think we should or because we want to be this good paragon of goodness. But because we see the suffering that we carry in the residues of guilt and blame and fear when there is an absence of integrity. Now, integrity in this tradition has a lot to do with loving kindness. In fact, when the Buddha speaks about loving kindness, he speaks, or speaks about ethics, sorry, he speaks about words of loving kindness, thoughts of loving kindness, acts of loving-kindness. And this is the definition of integrity. And so loving, the Brahma Viharas and, and you know, loving-kindness is an example of this, are also presented as pathways of renunciation. 
we see that this is true in our experience. When we're faced with hostility or rage, we see that mostly our immediate reaction is, is to punish, is to assert self, is to uh, retaliate. And for most of us, to cultivate loving kindness in that moment means being able to let go of all that. It means diving within ourselves to find a deeper kindness that is rooted in understanding and faith. And what are we letting go of in those moments? We're letting go of anger, of fear of the defense of self. When we practice loving kindness constantly, we are turning our hearts and minds away from the pathways of bitterness and rejection and rage and fear. It is a letting go. Each time we are changing our mind at the moment and changing our world at the moment. Now calmness and deeper states of samatha, the cultivation of calmness, the cultivation of one-pointedness and samatha, are also presented as pathways of renunciation. Learning to calm, to collect, to be mindful, often is to experience a very natural letting go. Now this is not a stranger, I think, to anybody here in this room. Most of you have probably had moments during this retreat, even if there's been little moments, when the mind is quite calm and collected. Now you see that when the mind is calm and collected, it doesn't mean that thoughts necessarily have disappeared, or sounds have disappeared, or body sensations have disappeared. But what happens? They, they haven't, but they arise and they pass. They appear and fade away. But what you see is that there is in that calmness and collectedness a very effortless letting go. We're not trying to let go. The calmness is letting go. There are other times when the calmness is absent and the mind is, is more unsettled exactly the same thoughts, exactly the same sounds, exactly the same images can arise as in the previous calmness. And we find ourselves you know, grabbing hold and wrestling and struggling. <coughs> the contents of the mind are not diff different. What is different is the climate of the mind. When the mind is calm and collected, Grasping doesn't find such an easy foothold. There is no isolating, no preferences. But just as the world arises, there's a natural rhythm also of its passing. So seeing that experience in meditation, I think, does lead us to ask, well, does it have to be such an accident? You know, does letting go in that sense so effortlessly really have to be such an accident. And of course, it's not. You know, in this tradition, we're not encouraged to cultivate attention as a path of self-punishment, but as an act of kindness. 
because it is what allows that very natural releasing of agitation. Now this is not easy because the habit of, of being lost is very strong. The intoxication of our mental swirl can often be very strong. Yet we learn to cultivate a different climate. It's not easy to be present because we see that a lot of the dwelling and a lot of the intoxication of thought is really kind of like the comfort food of the self. It's what sustains a sense of self. It's kind of the nutriment of feeding a sense of self. So often in developing deeper levels of calmness, we are learning actually to release not only the busyness of the mind, but the position uh, and, and the, the core of that belief in self. Another way that the Buddha described renunciation or the pathway of letting go is he used the word abandonment. Now, abandonment is a way of releasing the heart from contractedness. Now, clearly this word abandonment is a word we need to be incredibly careful with. Because there is a quality of abandonment, which is an expression of neglect and fear and aversion. And sometimes the near enemy, I would say, of renunciation is just walking away from something. You know, we tell ourselves we're letting go, but really what we're doing is pushing away something or, or, or neglecting something, avoiding something we just don't feel prone to take care of. But that is not the way that the Buddha used the word abandonment. Use the root, the word abandonment, as something that is deeply rooted in caring for the well-being of our heart and mind and world. Now, the way that I understand this is that most of you have probably experienced over these days here that sometimes we carry some very well-worn grooves in our mind. There are little pathways that we have walked down thousands of times. They might be grooves of self-judgment or self-blame. They might be grooves of the anxiety that leads us to rehearse every moment in our life. They may be the grooves of resistance or the grooves of doubt. They're kind of like the familiar resting places in our mind. And we visit them like holy shrines, don't we? <laughs> we don't especially want to be there. You know, it's kind of like getting sent on a package tour to somewhere you never in your whole life ever wanted to go and yet you keep going on this same kind of trip. We don't delight in being there, and yet there we are again, like a pilgrimage, 
you know, and, and often in those groups we have a lot of retrospective wisdom you know we look back and we say oh, yeah I really didn't need to do this I don't need to, to go there but it doesn't stop it and sometimes it's a habit it's a habit of dwelling in pain now what I think is really important in some of those groups is sometimes we need to recognize that we really don't have anything more to learn you know, we could walk down those same grooves another 10,000 times and we would not squeeze one more drop of insight out of a single <laughs> one of those trips. We've done it. We know it. We've been there. We know where it goes. We know where it ends up. There is nothing more to learn. Now it's just suffering. So we abandon it. We take the resolve of clear intention, the intention to let go, knowing that that letting go is an extension of kindness and compassion for ourselves. And we take that intention and that resolve not just once, but a thousand times. And each time we take it, we are letting go and we are cultivating a way of caring for our well-being. We are learning to release the painfulness of those moments. So abandonment is another of the pathways of letting go. Another of the words or pathways that the Buddha talks about is renunciation. He uses another word which is disenchantment as a way of releasing pain and contraction. Now again, this is another one of those words that initially doesn't sound particularly alluring, does it? Disenchantment, you know, you know, we like enchantment, we like excitement. But I think it is very important to understand that the way that the Buddha uses this word disenchantment in this teaching is that disenchantment is a withdrawal of projected promise. Now, what does that mean? Well, we get enchanted with lots of things. Things that we like and also things that we hate, we can be enchanted with. But what is part of the, the psychology of that enchantment is this projected promise. We say, oh, that thing, that person, that event, that experience holds the power to make me happy. It holds the power to make me complete, it holds the power to make me everything I ever wanted to be. Just as we might also say with that person or that situation or that event has the power to make me unhappy, has the power to devastate me, has the power to take everything away from me that I've ever wanted. Now, one of the classic examples of this kind of enchantment that the Buddha talked about is of course falling in love. Now, every time we've ever fallen in love, I'm sure most of us have been there, we're absolutely sure that our life is a disaster without this person. For a while, anyway. We might change our minds later. But we're convinced that our happiness and our completeness is absolutely reliant upon being with this person. 
Now, we can be enchanted with a lot of things, can't we? We can be enchanted with uh, the meditation experience we haven't had. We're sure that if I just had this next meditation experience, the one they all talk about, then it, my life is going to be perfect. It has the power to make me happy. You know, we can be enchanted with a favorite chocolate in a box. We can be enchanted with, you know, the, the, the accolade we haven't yet got, the praise we haven't yet received. We think, just this, just this, just this, and then I'm going to be perfect. The locus of our need shifts, but the locus of that need, of that search, that power, rests upon a belief that we are simply not enough. That there is this inner sense of vacuum. And so the promise of perfection, the promise of happiness, is projected onto something, someone else. This is the belief that keeps samsara going. It's what keeps us spinning in circles. Equally, our enchantment, as I mentioned, is with the difficult, you know. Our enemy, if only I got rid of this, if only I had a different roommate, if only I had a different body, you know, if only I had a different mind, if only I had different soup at tea time, you know, if only I had a different meditation center, different teacher, then, <laughs> of course, I would reach that, that perfect land. It is the externalization of happiness and unhappiness, and it leads to a lot of clinging in our life. That externalization of happiness and unhappiness is a great hindrance to renunciation. Sometimes we even, you know, we, we get a little wild with this too. You know, you consider a situation like this, you know, we pretty much have what we need here, you know, we have show, we have a roof over our head, people feed us, you know, we don't, it's not, it's not that bad, you know, really. And yet sometimes people come say, oh, you know, I was happy before I came on retreat. And this retreat's making me suffer. <laughs> they think, is it? This is again part of the enchantment. First, there's the projection. The belief that the cause of our unhappiness, our anxiety, our happiness, our relation lies outside, lies elsewhere. After the projection is the agitation, if I could fix this, get this, get rid of this, then life would be a bowl of cherries. So the Buddha talks about disenchantment as a pathway of letting go. Now disenchantment doesn't mean that we just stop engaging with the world, you know. It's like Suzuki Roshi said, you know, everything is perfect, but there's quite a bit of room for improvement. But what disenchantment is, is the withdrawal of projected promise. It is born of the insight and the investigation, the willingness to be truly intimate with all those moments when we deliver ourselves into emotional dependency. The investigation of all, all those moments when we deliver ourselves into the grip of that conviction that anything in the world has the power to truly dictate our happiness and our well-being. 
Disenchantment doesn't mean that we stop loving or even stop feeling aversion, anxiety, but it does mean that we stop blaming. And disenchantment might mean that we stop running in the agitated circles of pursuit and avoidance. It might release a very profound calm. On a deeper level, with disenchantment, we are really reclaiming a sense of freedom, of not being governed by anything, inwardly or outwardly. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha says again and again, a yogi abides independent, not clinging to anything. Now this independence is not an independence of separation, of disconnection or of isolation, but the independence of not being governed by anything. And abiding independent, not clinging to anything. It's a practice we train ourselves in. It's a practice of training ourselves in freedom. Not as a distant goal. Not as a reward for years of stoic effort or suffering. But knowing that practice of the realization of freedom moment to moment knowing the moments when we feel less than free, when our hearts and minds are governed by anything. And these are the places we ask ourselves, where is the peace? Where is the release? Where is the letting go? What is needed in those moments of being governed? Sometimes what is needed to let go is forgiveness, is forgiveness for ourselves or forgiveness for those that we feel most bound to in resentment and anger. Sometimes our release is found in the pathways of loving kindness and compassion. Sometimes our freedom is found in the pathways of abandonment. You know, last year I had this wonderful realization that Almost everywhere I teach, because I sit where I do, whenever I open my eyes, what I see is the exit sign. <laughs> I'm always facing the fire exit sign. You know, so a lot of things I just open my eyes and I see the word exit. I thought this has been such a good kind of koan, you know, because sometimes that's just what's needed, isn't it? You know, you're in those obsessions, you know, in those repetitive places, in those well-worked groups, well, just think about exit. <laughs> All you need to remember. Sometimes the key to freedom lies in reclaiming that trust and confidence in ourselves that the source of genuine happiness and well-being does truly lie in our own hearts and minds. We can practice and live in a way in which we treasure freedom. We can practice and live in a way in which we really treasure the release in each moment. We can practice and live in a way in which we, we cultivate that spirit of freedom and letting go. Ajahn Chah said, 
that the Buddhist, the Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's the way it is. And when wisdom awakens within you, you will see the truth wherever you look. Truth is all that you will see. If we could have a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.